Welcome to the For Love and Money podcast, the show where business and social purpose meet to inspire a movement for positive change. Here's your host, Carolyn Butler-Madden. Today's guest on the For Love and Money podcast is a person who works at the very heart of social impact and business. Tom Dawkins is co-founder and CEO of Start Some Good, a B Corp certified social enterprise which helps people design, launch and grow social impact projects. Start Some Good runs a Good Hustle social enterprise design course, startsomegood.com crowdfunding platform and impact accelerators and entrepreneur education programs for partners that include the likes of Optus, ING, the United Nations Development Program and the City of Sydney. Previously, Tom was the founder of youth nonprofit Vibewire, first digital communications director for Ashoka in Washington, DC, co-founder of the Australian Changemakers Festival and a founding director of the Social Enterprise Council of New South Wales and the ACT. He's also a director of the Centre for Social Impact. Tom, welcome to the For Love and Money podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as a guest. So grateful to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I want to kick off um, with a question I ask everybody, and that's to um, get you to tell us what you think um, the role of love has to play in business, if anything at all. I mean, I think love should be at the heart of almost everything we devote ourselves to in life. And certainly business, for most of us, represents a good chunk of our lives and a good chunk of our days. Um, And so I've always certainly been the kind of person that has been oriented around my passions uh, my, my values and my politics in terms of wanting that to be my day job uh, and wanting to, do, you know, couldn't ever really imagine doing anything else. So I've certainly never had that distinction. But I know, you know, certainly I've had friends who very much are of that, you know, I don't live to work, man. I, I work to live and, and their passions are elsewhere. Their passions are music and travel and, and, and such things. And I like those things too. Um, and and they, they, you know, are not that passionate about their job. It just funds the things they are passionate about. But but that's never been for me. Uh, and I think certainly when you bring those things together, that's both, you know, greater alignment on a personal basis. But I also think for a business, it can be an enormous business um, advantage as well, particularly today in in having that purpose be at the forefront of who you are and what you choose to do. It's such an energizer, isn't it? I, I remember, I remember the first time I met you, and Tom and I, you know, we we um, work in in similar circles, and we see each other at events and everything. But somebody introduced us, and we met um, at a cafe in Surrey Hills, and our one hour meeting turned into a two and a half hour meeting from memory, and it's just the passion of you know what you're trying to achieve and I think there's you know there's clearly crossover between what we're doing but it's such an energizer and um, I think for many business um, founders and leaders who work with purpose-led organizations you know it just gives them and their teams the resilience and the agility and the drive and energy to push through barriers that otherwise might just hold you back right. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, just business is hard if that's what you choose to do. And changing the world is hard. And so, you know, sometimes I think, you know, those of us in the social enterprise world are taking this hilarious approach uh, approach of doing like two of the hardest things you can possibly set up <laughs> to do simultaneously together. Um, but other times that feels brilliant. You know, it feels genius. It depends what day you get me on. But no, I think that, you know, obviously to be able to do that really does, you know, uh, 
certainly through those inevitable challenges that I think come with any sort of innovation or entrepreneurial activity, there'll be setbacks. Um, it it keeps you going through those um, because you know you know why you're there, um, and it certainly makes the journey itself more meaningful. Exactly. So um, tell us about the journey to start some good. You've had you've had such an interesting background. I'd love you to share some of that with our listeners. Yeah, I've always been a bit of a starter upper of things from a from a pretty early age. You know, if there was something I, I thought ought to exist, often something I myself wanted to access or be part of, but it didn't exist. You know, I was just you know, fortunate, I guess, with the kind of family culture I came from and upbringing and opportunity in my own personalities, I was just the kind of person who was like, all right, well, I guess we're going to have to create that. Um, and, you know, that even starting, you know, when I was a, a teenager, uh, there wasn't a local basketball team. You know, I could play basketball for my school, but, uh, but you know, me, I had a really good mate who lived locally with me, went to very different schools, so we wanted to be on a team together, and there just wasn't kind of one. There was a kind of regional region regional competition so we just you know invented a team and registered <laughs> it ourselves and designed our own uniforms and and so on love that um, love that and that's just you know right the way through you know publishing zines and distributing them across high schools in sydney so i guess you know by the time i finished university i founded three nonprofits, somewhat you know not not super strategically necessarily not always certainly i mean i said not, not always knowing what i was doing i mean <laughs> never knowing what i was doing really um, but the first of them being a high school student organization to inspire people, my, my peers, to to be more active citizens and to get involved in making a difference than a university student organization with a similar orientation. And then I got really interested in the role that technology could play and media and arts as well um, in, in, I guess, building that conversation about the future and allowing more people to share their stories and be involved. Um, and that led me to set up an organization called Vibewire, which is which I then led for the next eight years and is now 22 years old and still operating. Wow. Um, and that's a, that's a nonprofit that supports, you know, young people to, to, you know, develop their talents and make a difference in the world around them. Um, and I think kind of during that time, I, I like to say we kind of invented for ourselves the idea of social, like no one, I'd never heard of social enterprise, to be honest, no one had ever explained it to me. Um, I didn't do a business degree or anything. I did a political science and philosophy double major. Um, so I'm really interested. That, that explains a few things, right? Yeah, um, definitely. You know, I'm really interested in ideas and how they travel and how people get involved and how change happens, you know. So that's a professional competency for me today, uh, very linked to my degree. But certainly in terms of the practicalities of how you, like, grow an organisation, that was that's, that's just 100% being trial and error um, <laughs> the, the whole way through. Um, and so certainly starting out, you know, we set it up as a non-profit and started applying for grants as kind of the thing we knew what to do. You know, that seemed obvious. I'd applied, I'd got a few grants before. Um, for some of the previous things I'd done, small grants, you know, for young people doing doing things, grants uh, administered by the university for student-led initiatives and so on. So I understood that as a as a premise and started doing that um, and was, you know, reasonably successful with that, but it was really hard. Um, and it was really hard because we weren't tax deductible. There isn't a, there isn't a you know, we were a, a, a non-profit, a community organisation, but there isn't a tax deductible uh, uh, category for... Mm creating a better democracy. Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't enough of an arts organisation to be an arts DGR. We weren't enough of an educated, you know, we're in a registered training organisation. Um, we used the arts, we used media, you know. Yeah. Um, but but our, our beneficial purpose didn't line up with any of the official beneficial purposes. So never were tax deductible. And then, of course, equally, we were doing things that no one had ever done before. You know, we were a group of 
early 20-somethings with convictions around what it would take to engage more of our peers in being more active citizens. And that took a bunch of different kind of experimental forms from, you know, from a, a film festival of youth-made issues-focused films that toured with Dendi around the country to sending orders out on the campaign trail during federal elections. You know, that elite group of journalists that travel with the prime minister and the opposition leader with 18-year-olds travelling on, on, on the plane. Uh, we opened the first co-working space in Australia. Really? Uh, a space, yeah. Um to provide, don't listen to fish burners. Not only were they not, they claim Australia's first co-working space. Not only were they not Australia's first co-working space, they weren't even the first co-working space on Harris Street, Ultimo. Because we, <laughs> we opened at the other end of that street 18 months before then. Is that right? The yeah, record is very, stands very corrected. Fond, I'm very fond of uh, of telling them. They've got this beautiful plaque in there. In this. I'm a member of fish burners. I love fish burners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should get on the record. That's where I actually, you know, spend time. Um, you know, all we, but at the time... You know, trying to support more young people to, you know, meet each other and access shared resources and, and make things happen that made a difference. Um, did a bunch of, you know, online stuff. Did, you know, we're hosting things that today I guess we would call a virtual conference or a virtual forum, um, but which we called the e-festival of ideas. In, yep. in you know, 2000 and, gosh, when would it have been? 2000, maybe? Wow. Um, 1999, very early anyway. Um and so we were doing a bunch of things that we had never done before. We had no evidence that we could do it because all of it was new to us. We'd never run a film festival before, never opened a co-working space before, never sent report. We weren't a meet. We weren't really, you know, a, 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 a newsroom, but we were sending reporters out and, and running essentially a twenty-four-seven newsroom for the election campaigns and so on. All of this was new to us, so we couldn't prove that we knew how to do it or were capable of doing it successfully. And in general, we couldn't even prove that it would work because not only had we not done it before, no one had done it before. So there were no impact metrics, no evidence as such, just our conviction about what our community and our peers needed. And so it was really hard to raise philanthropic capital. And this was my first experience of, I think, some of the challenges of funding innovation. Um, but it was also my first experience with social enterprise because just in the sheer you know, determination to fund some of these activities, we started just looking around for other ways of funding stuff. Mm -hmm. And so started developing, you know, earned revenue models of various sorts. You know, the film festival was entirely funded by uh, sponsorship, uh, corporate sponsorship. The The co-working space did get off the ground with a significant grant, but then was sustainable through the normal model, people paying to be members uh, and so on. We we did a bunch of fee-for-service work for other bigger nonprofits and, you know, city governments to help run. They didn't know how to talk to young people. We did. So we ran youth consultative processes and events and so on. So by the time I left, it was about two-thirds earned revenue um, and only about one-third uh, donations. Um, yeah. And so that was kind of... And so what period was this, Tom, just to... Oh, this is 2000 to 2008. Right. Okay. And then in 2008, I moved to the US and I worked for Ashoka for two years. And they literally invented the phrase social entrepreneurship uh, about ah. 50 years ago. Bill Drayton, the founder of Ashoka, was the first person to describe this thing that is so familiar to all of us now, which is using entrepreneurial skills and entrepreneurial approaches to create scalable and hopefully systems level social impact. So um, suddenly you're like, aha, this is this is it. Foot level as well. Like suddenly I'm thinking about this kind of more structurally, you know, you get really in the, I mean, I thought a lot about, I guess, social change structurally. How do we get more young people involved? In, I didn't really think a lot about how do you start an enterprise structurally? That was just me in my trench, you know? And so, as I said, it was like incredibly hard work for eight years to 
you know, ultimately probably well, raised about a million dollars over those eight years, which sounds like an impressive amount, but you divide it by eight and it's not, you know, it's like huge. I mean, it was nothing for the first four years, essentially, or three years or so. It was all volunteers and then slowly, you know, added it, got a little bit more, got a little bit more. I went full time. Someone else came on board, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I didn't know if it was hard because because it was hard or if it was hard because I wasn't very good at it. You know, I had a sample size of one, really, which is my own experiences. And so Ashoka was Isn't really that all important. we all have? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, no, I guess I would say now I have a vastly greater sample set in terms of my role at Start Some Good and the number of yeah. people I, I, I see. I'm not just, while I have my own experience growing Start Some Good, I actually, the nature of Start Some Good lets me, gives me insight. Yeah, that's of the, very true. So it does depend a little bit on where you're sitting. And I guess kind of suddenly going from here to Washington, D.C. to, to be the first digital communications director at Ashoka really felt like suddenly like whoosh up to this like very different perspective you know, on the world and the nature of the work. Um, and, and I guess that was what got me, you know, thinking, well, not got me, I guess I was already thinking, but even more so about social, I was already very interested in technology, but social media storytelling and how can that be used to create an everyone a change maker world, which is Ashoka's ultimate mission. Um, and then, and this is getting to the crux of it, so it's a bit of a long-winded version, but then I spent two years in San Francisco and that was really crucial because that was where I felt like I experienced for the first time in my life what a pro-innovation ecosystem looks and feels like. And I realized part of why it had been so hard when I was, you know, trying to get this innovative organization, this this new, what became a, a you know, social enterprise-y kind of organization doing innovative projects and work off the ground was because the social sector in general has not historically been very good at supporting innovation. In some contexts, it's better. But 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 across the board, it's a little bit like a world of all VCs and no angel investors. Right. Which is what I suddenly understood. These are quite different approaches. You know, VCs, venture capitalists are, are investing other people's money. And yeah. they have to therefore make sensible decisions that they can back up. Can't just be like, oh, I had a feeling. Um, you, you've got to turn around and talk to the person who invested in you about why you invested in them. And so you want naturally to be able to make a good case backed by data. In the commercial yeah. world, that's you know, that's fine because there's this whole other set of players who don't need data. They're happy to fund experiments. You mm. know, they're happy to fund things that may or may not work because it seems like they could work. Let's find yes. out. Um, and so they don't ask the question of, does it work? They say, could it work? What would it take to figure out if it worked? And of course, it's thanks to many of those early investors taking those big risks that people are then able to do stuff that that produces data that they can then present to the people who need data to make their decisions. And I realized that we just have an unbalanced ecosystem when it comes to social impact and social innovation, because essentially everyone's in that VC type posture, foundations, governments, even high net worths in theory, you know, you're not meeting normally with the rich person yourself, there's someone who works for them. So there's all these people investing other people's money with a lot of pressure to like be sensible and not waste. Also, uh, you know, in, infected by a scarcity mindset, I think, in our sector. Yep. Where San Francisco is very much an abundance mindset, for yep. better or for worse. Um, and so that was, I guess, a real clarifying point for me around people need the opportunity to try things. Uh, and we thought, well, and, and wait, so are you still with Ashoka at this point? No, I'd moved to work for a new startup, but I had a very startup-y kind of experience, to be honest, when I moved to San Francisco. We decided, so the kind of visa I was on is called the E3 visa at the time, which is two-year, a two-year visa, and then you have to reapply. So you kind of think in terms of two-year terms. Yeah, yeah, okay. did a tour of duty in Washington, D.C., and my wife and I thought, do we want to be here another two years? Do we want to go home? Do we want to be somewhere else? And decided that, you know, we were 
we wanted to maybe spend a bit more time in America, but that felt like a good stint in DC, which is a great yep. city. It's much better. I worried it was going to be, you know, not a very interesting place. It was an incredibly interesting place to be, but we thought it'd be fun to be somewhere else. And San Francisco felt like, you know, was the, the bit of a bit of a clarion call in terms of a lot of the things. We it sounds like it turned out to be well. that too. Yeah, so she was working in wine, which San Francisco is great for. I was working in kind of social change and tech, and that's San Francisco is great for those. So, um, and so I went. I found there was a startup that was DC based, but which was opening an office in San Francisco. So I went over then there to open an office up. Up it was twenty ten. There was kind of a mini recession in the US then. A funding round fell through, and six weeks after I'd got there, they decided to pull the plug on that new office, leaving me somewhat stranded and uncertain what I was doing with no one to like needed someone to pick up my visa it's not that easy just to jump into a new role you know when you need someone to sponsor you and so on but was very fortunate to end up um with a a, a kind of non-profit innovation lab called hope lab in silicon mm-hmm. valley um and and therefore to stick around uh for about two years and it was just kind of to been around i mean the hope lab was cool but it was more just what i learned from observing and seeing and and been within the ecosystem and then before I knew it I was starting my own company because that's what happens it's just a very encouraging environment if you have some sort of an idea you mean San Francisco generally or general to just try things you know yeah, okay you know, you go to a house party and every second person you meet's a founder it just kind of feels yeah. it demystifies de- 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 you know kind of demystifies it makes it seem less intimidating it's just a thing that people do and if, if it's just a thing that people can do then it's a thing that you can do not that it had hold, held you back before I mean you seem no, to say <laughs> you'd done a few hadn't you yeah yeah so maybe maybe I'm more an after case study that I'm claiming myself to be but you know <laughs> but I, I can tell you even having having done it before it definitely felt more um, yeah. encouraging and there was more access to other people like me who were also willing to plunge in and try things you know who were who were gathering in places like co-working spaces and yeah fantastic you know the the, the kind of the, the first accelerator type program why combinator had, had just been around for a year or two at that point and you know that was starting to emerge that kind of intermediary sector was really i think getting well developed in the startup world and i kind of realized that's a whole layer that's basically missing when it comes to social innovation social enterprises any kind of a vehicle that's trying to do something new in the pursuit of social impact and and, and i guess one of my one of my great frustrations or disappointments when it comes to the social enterprise impact in the world at the moment is that I feel like impact investing is 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 not taking the lessons from actual startup investing. They're repeating the patterns of philanthropy, which is a bunch of big cashed up organizations who are quite conservative and risk averse, creating a completely unbalanced sector with insufficient actors willing to go first. Yeah. Actually risk money to figure out new things and, and find out what can work. So unfortunately, like And why do you work, think that is why do you think that is, Tom? Oh, there's a bunch of, I have a handful of reasons, I think. So a couple of things. One thing I think is that it helps if the money has been made in entrepreneurial ways. I think that creates an appetite for investing in more entrepreneurial ways. But the fact is Australia doesn't have a lot of actual, and it's getting, you know, we have, it's emerging now, Canva, Atlassian, but we actually have very little, we we have very little entrepreneurial wealth until recently. Most Mm. of our wealth was created through industries like mining and property development. Yeah. Those are incredibly low risk, highly operationalized, you know, they're operational organizations. They're not research and development. Mm. You know, Meriton's not like in the lab cooking up new ways of building apartments. They're just super yeah. good at like putting apartments up super efficiently, selling them for more than it costs them to make them and making a profit, doing it again, doing it again, yep. doing it again. And the big mining companies are the same. You know, there is a kind of more entrepreneurial slice of mining, the people who go out there prospecting and stuff. 
But the big companies don't do that. They wait until there's proven deposits and then they buy them up and then they just operationalize. Yep. And so, you know, people, I think you've made their money through those sorts of industries. The idea that you would invest in things that are like 90% likely not to, to fail, but the 10% could be a, a, an incredible breakthrough that, that represent, you know, that creates, you know, massive amounts of impact and wealth potentially is just, I think, kind of an equation they can't get their heads around. Mm. Whereas if, if you made your wealth through entrepreneur you kind of are aware that hey I was that 10 percent yeah um I know it can happen I've seen it work I was right there um and I think and, and, understand and, and it made us a bit better so that's that's one piece and it, it begs the question like it's a really interesting one because I guess you know angel investors and um investors in pure for-profit organizations mm. risk takers um but but the 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 upside is you hit the right one and bingo yeah. you know you're on a winner and it's money money focused right, right. profit focused. I was actually going to say that as actually the second challenge is it's harder to calculate these risk reward trade offs because yeah. um, actually business is pretty simple like you know the details are I guess always unique but the but the but the end result the output is always the same profit and loss. You know, yeah. every business, like every business person knows how to read every other business person's books and success, but that's not true in the impact space. Mm. The fact that you're an expert impact entrepreneur in one area doesn't make you able to pass or understand automatically the impact metrics in a completely different area. Yeah. Um, and and it's really, so it's really hard to cross-calculate. So, you know, when it comes to just commercial angel investing, the, the calculation is pretty simple. You know, if you put into a, you put in a hundred early stage investments, 99% of them can fail. But if the one returns 100x, you're broken even. Yeah. You know, so everything just is able to be really easily cross-calculated across portfolios. But it's, I think, much harder to calculate across portfolios when it comes to social impact. So what would it look mm. like for a foundation to say 90% of our grants didn't produce the impact we wanted? Um, but these 10% are, wow, they've really, like, discovered something important and we're going to scale that up and that's going to transform this particular challenge or sector, um, we don't really even have a language or, or a capacity to do that. And I think that part of that is part of that is somewhat unsolvable and just requires a certain degree of courage, which is why yeah. and commitment. And that's why you, you do see areas where we don't stress out as much about this. You know, you look at something like cancer research, and no one's like, before I fund this experiment, promise me you're going to solve cancer by the end of the mm. year. People understand that that's no one can promise that we've got to do the work and and we just keep pouring money in and we're going to keep pouring money in until we solve it and that's just as a society we've just decided we've made a commitment yeah it's just we're not going to give up and just whatever it costs yeah just gonna, um and i just think you know and we need some degree of that kind of level of commitment to a lot of our other endemic challenges you know if we had the same approach to homelessness or the same approach to mental health i think we would get a lot further but we apply i think such a strict will it work lens mm. to a lot of these things you know there's heaps of money out there and people willing to support good things but they they want they want to know that it will work yeah and so I, I call it kind of it's this, it's this will it work you know I, I'll fund it but make you know reassure me guarantee me make me convinced it will work rather than the could it work lens yeah yeah you know it might and not but if it did what would that make possible and mm. is that worth and often the, the the irony is in a way that often kind of it doesn't cost as much you know you, like if we're talking about running more earlier stage experiments and being willing um and so that's the other problem in the unbalance it's the big funds there's just a logic of bigness that makes it hard for them to do small 
Yeah. If you've got, if you're a hundred, like I always say to people, you know, if, if I hear about another hundred million dollar impact fund launching, you'd think I would be excited, but I won't be excited at all. Cause I don't think that will move the needle at all. They'll just go hang out with the other hundred million dollar impact funds. You know what they talk about the whole time? Lack of deal flow. None lack of, them lack can, of what? Lack of deal flow. There aren't enough social enterprises that meet our standards of investability. Right. So we're having trouble getting, affecting our money and the, and, and that's so often framed like that's just a failure by the entrepreneurs. Here we are doing the right thing. We've raised this huge fund. What more do you want from us? You know, but there's yeah. like they're sitting up there on top of the mountain, just waiting for everyone to like struggle up there with no resources and mm. adequate down jackets and no ropes. And once we arrive on top of the mountain, then these gurus of impact have have funding for us when what we need, of course, is to come down the mountain and meet us earlier. And so what could really move the needle would be a million dollar impact investment fund willing to make $50,000 investments. Whereas what we have is $100 million impact investment funds willing to only make $500,000 investments or million dollar investments. And so that means not only do we have, I think, a real lack of support at the very earliest stages, that's getting a little bit better though. That, that's actually come a long way in the 10 years since yep. we started starting some good 11 years now. What are we up to? Um, you know, now there is a, a, a pretty good ecosystem. We need more, but, you know, there's crowdfunding platforms to use there's accelerators there's some kind of innovation grants and fellowships um still not enough but a lot more than there was and now a lot of the focus is on what people call the missing middle which is that next stage that you know you need more than you can just rally through a crowdfunding campaign and more than your average kind of innovation program would chip in or an accelerator will give you but you need less and you don't yet have the traction to justify the kinds of amounts that the big impact funds want to put in and there's kind of no one in between and that's yep. the missing middle where it's really hard to raise 50 to 500 yeah above 500 if you've got the metrics if you've got the traction relatively easy to raise actually there's like an oversupply of capital for those who meet those very stringent criteria up there but an undersupply of capital everywhere short of there which brings us neatly to start some good. So, mm. uh, you know, uh, assi let's assume our listeners don't know start some good. Sure. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Many won't. Um, I'm excited to introduce them to it right now. Fantastic. Me too. Um, so, yeah, we started as focusing on that financing piece, particularly at the very beginning. Where is that kind of angel, fin angel type financing going to come from for social impact? Uh, and I guess in, in thinking about that, one of the things we looked at was who else is kind of doing a good job of supporting innovation and supporting the new. And we're, my original co-founder, Alex, and I were really inspired by and intrigued by the role Kickstarter was playing when it came to creative innovation, creative entrepreneurs. And the way we thought about that was they were helping people go around the gatekeepers, you know, the traditional gatekeepers in music would say record labels. Um, mm -hmm. And instead they said, hey, what if listeners, what if audiences could fund the production of records directly? And we thought, ah, that's what social entrepreneurs need as well to not just keep going and beating their head against the closed door of philanthropy and grants and so on which is there wasn't a thing really called impact investing even at the time um that i was very aware of but instead you know go directly to communities who are affected or who care uh, or, who, or who are you know hungry for inspiration and great stories to be part of yeah um, and and invite them to kind of join at these earlier stages and 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 support you so we we started as a crowdfunding platform um, but we've diversified enormously, enormously since then. We've fallen a bit behind in our own storytelling. We're completely overhauling our website at the moment because our website is still a crowdfunding platform. And but it's um, but these days, what we're what we're trying to offer and what we've kind of built out is an inter interconnected kind of ecosystem that helps people take 
kind of essentially move from idea to planning to launching and then growing across a few key steps. Um, and so our event program and founders community, helping people kind of think, you know, come up with new ideas and be inspired by what's out there. The Good Hustle Social Enterprise Design course um, and other kind of capacity building programs that we deliver in partnership, often focused at a specific beneficiary community like refugee founders or First Nations founders, female founders and so on, um, or around a specific challenge like circular economy and um, sustainable seafood. It's quite diverse. Um, but all of that helping people kind of essentially turn an idea into a plan or yep. into, a, into, a, into a model, an impact model, a business model, the things you need to move forward, the clarity and confidence around how yep. it's done, not just what you want to achieve. Um, and then these days, still using crowdfunding as a really important tool to help people test and launch and fundraise for new ideas, often kind of incorporating crowdfunding into our accelerators and so on as that go-to-market strategy. Um, so instead of having to set, you know, People often accelerate so often orient people towards investors, but the, as we've been talking about, the fact of the matter is there's very few of them out there for this kind of category, and it's much better to orient yourself towards customers mm -hmm. um, and to offer them, you know, and to build that community of of supporters who want to be part of what you're doing. And now our our, our newest kind of stepping stone in the sequence is a new platform called Lend for Good, which is a crowd lending platform for growth ready social enterprises, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, directly designed to address that missing middle. You know, you're, you're past a crowdfunding campaign. You've got something that is working. You know, it's not square. It's not step one. It's working and you're ready to grow. Um, a lot of people are jumping to equity or looking for equity there, but that's actually not the moment. You know, if you have something that's reproducible and relatively low risk now, you just need capital to scale. That's that's what debt's great for. The problem being, again, that there's the, the, the criteria of most of the debt investors in impact are, are very strict, require a certain amount of, years of operation or more commonly require yep. a securitized asset and we believe once again that that slightly more purpose-driven risk tolerant capital can come from the wider community mm -hmm. rather than just the institutional investors or those as they're insultingly called in the legislation the sophisticated investors we kind of think that we want you know we believe that there's an opportunity for everyone to be an impact investor you know with in, in sensible ways that that, that that meet their own capacity without putting you know themselves in any danger but there's a yep. lot of great potential deals out there that people just don't have access to at the moment and, and then for good would provide that access to see what's out there and so how how do you differentiate lend for good from from the crowdfunding platform i guess they're, they're quite different asset types um so our you know starts and good we i guess we particularly focus it around launches and trying new things yep. starting good things now you know that's obviously not the only thing you can run a crowdfunding campaign for and not the only thing we've ever hosted so, you know some of our campaigns have been to save things that are in danger of shutting down or going out of business or being knocked down physically in some cases but 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 typically and what we've always kind of focused on is helping people start new things as the name might suggest um and so we and so the style of crowdfunding is what people might be people aren't familiar with start some good it's what you might be familiar with that kickstarter or possible a very popular model in yep. the creative industries so it's an all or nothing style model where people have to reach a defined fundraising goal within the time frame that they've got. But, and then every campaign on our platform has to be social impact. Mm -hmm. But they vary. There's kind of, I guess, two. They, they vary basically between product oriented or, or purely philanthropic oriented. Yep. So there are, you know, I'm running a community project and it's important and it creates these impacts and you should support it for those yep. reasons. You know, a, a typical more donation oriented pitch. Um but what we really like and encourage, and as I said, when we when we integrate crowdfunding into our programs, 
what we're really trying to support help people do is is not make that kind of a pitch but a more sales oriented pitch that mm-hmm. that raises money while simultaneously identifying a customer group and testing their product proposition yeah so that if they succeed they don't just have funding they have a whole lot of evidence and credibility that something works and we've found that that's actually what opens those next doors in terms of other forms of capital raising twenty thousand dollars from you know, I mean, that, that may be what you need right now, and that's fine. We see a lot of that. There's kind of essentially two main styles of how people crowdfund to launch a social enterprise. One is that more philanthropic, I am going to launch a social enterprise, and I need support now so that I can launch a social enterprise. Yes. Focused. And what they're almost always asking for then is donations because they're not ready to sell the product yet. I need to design it. I need to test it. I need, you know, I'm not. Um, the other style is I am launching a social enterprise here's the thing, you know, here's what we do, here's what this social enterprise does, do you want that thing, that product or service? I think that it's that second one that actually is, obviously represents more and creates, yep. and creates more credibility in terms of, the first one is not uncommon, it's what in the startup world they call the family and friends round, you know, mm-hmm. crowdfunding can just be a, a very efficient way to raise that first bit of capital from your networks and to help your networks share it with their networks and you never know who pops out of the woodwork and ships in. So a lot of that. But the second one, when you can go to any type of other new investor or partner and say, I've sold it, I've sold the thing to a group of customers and they really like it, um, can create enormous amounts of credibility. And we've seen it really rocket people forward, even with relatively modest fundraising targets, you know, like stationary social enterprises that have pre-sold $15,000 worth of stationary, but then instantly been able to open a door with a major retailer who has seen that as evidence that there is a uh, there is a market for their product yep. um, and that all they need now is to put it in front of more people and has and has led them to like create you know to to secure a huge deal like that very quickly that I don't think they could have otherwise secured because it kind of does that double you know that dual purpose of both mm. the money you need but it's also the the evidence you need and as yep. an early stage social enterprise evidence is what you really need you need you may need money in order to go and collect more evidence in order to run a pile of yep. you might need money for that but it's not ultimately what you need what you ultimately need is well sales yeah um, but sale but sales also equals evidence that you could get more sales and that's the key to bringing on other partners and potential investors and that's what can you can get you to that point where more of those traditional impact investors or philanthropists for that matter will see you as investable based you know in their in their eyes and their criteria yeah brilliant enjoying the podcast if you're looking for more inspiration head to our website thecauseeffects.com.au for more resources on how you can start using your business as a force for good or buy the for love and money book every copy sold allows us to protect one square meter of rainforest Help us save 10,000 square metres by 2025. Yeah, brilliant. Um, thanks for that explanation. Oh, and... so let's just start some good. So then what I should say with Lend for Good is it's a loan. The key thing to yeah, understand okay. is it's a loan. People, you'll have to pay it back. The enterprise will pay it back with interest. Um, and so we believe, you know, the, the opportunity there is for, you don't need to be, you know, a, a highly wealthy professional investor. If you have money in the bank, there's a way to use it in a much more, you know, to, to create more impact while earning a better return. Um, and there's Brilliant, a lot of but... quite low, low risk deals out there. I'm not a financial advisor, usually the same as apply. Um, but part of our model that's very intentionally created with Lem for Good is where our mindset when we launched Starts and Good, as I told you, was let's go around the gatekeepers. These people don't know how to support innovation. We need to actually encourage entrepreneurs not to stress out about them and instead build their own community. Still good advice, I think. 
but Lens for Good is very intentionally built with what you might call the, some of the gatekeepers in the in the impact investing world, which is the people making investments and doing due diligence. Okay. Um, and that's the big bottleneck. That's a, another of the big bottlenecks in impact investing at the moment is there's a lot of due diligence happening out there and it's all a black box and, and, a, and most of it's wasted. People decide not to invest and then all their due diligence or they decide to invest, but all of it just remains a personal decision for them. None yep. of that is opened up or shared anyway. So Lend for Good is actually partnered with so far seven um, social enterprise intermediary and only they can list deals on the platform. With, so who, have, who have you partnered with, sorry? Seven um, impact invested intermediaries so far, including Red Hat Impact, um, She yep. Baxter, which is a gender lens investor, um, CIFA, Social Enterprise Finance Australia, um, who do who are an impact debt investor for the first time will be able to open up some of their deals for you won't have at the moment if you want to kind of get involved in CIFA deals, and this is how much of the market is structured. If you want to become an impact investor, the only real option at the moment is to invest in funds. Mm-hmm. The only way you can invest in deals is to then set yourself up as a professional investor, employing right. your own staff to source your own deals, to do your own due diligence. Either way, it's expensive. You know, no, it's not available to average people at all. Yeah. Either, either you have to like set up a whole company and organization and staff it up and take that approach or yet you invest in a fund and that normally has minimums of maybe a million dollars in some cases. Okay. Um, But by only investing in a fund, you don't get to do what I think is, you know, kind of the most exciting, inspiring piece, which is engaging with and that feeling of supporting specific individual enterprises, or at least you only get to experience that after the, after the fact where the fund comes back and says, this is who we invested in. Yeah. We think there's a whole world of people out there who don't have the capital to invest in a fund, but also don't want to. Um, because investing in a fund requires that you're really into this thing called impact investing. Mm. But most people are not into impact investing. They're in, they're into specific types of impact, just like people aren't into philanthropy. No one's mm. like, you know what I love? Donating money. I mean, some people do say that, but it's not usually true. What they mean is I love donating to the arts. Yeah, I love donating to early childhood organizations. Like, There's very yeah. few people who are just like, I don't care what I donate to. I just love the experience. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah people have more specific interests. So if you were just invited to donate, do you want to donate to philanthropy? Do you want to donate to an undifferentiated philanthropic fund and they'll decide what they then give the money to? Most people are not up for that. They want to choose specific projects, specific stories. And that's what's missing from impact investing at the moment, that opportunity to choose specific stories, specific impacts, and to put, you know, some amount of money as little as $500 that is affordable to you into those specific projects. And so so that's what Lend for Good. That's right. That's a, that's amazing. So you're not just—it's not just about partnering with impact investors to provide loans to um, your community, but it's actually allowing people who want to invest in specific impact um, areas to to do that. That's incredible. Yeah. And in some ways, you can see that slightly different orientation in the name, even like the—we've thought a lot about our theory of change for land for good. Um, and there's kind of a couple of ways you can think about that, I think, as a, as a platform. One is that you can kind of just claim all the impact created by all the projects funded by your platform, just aggregate. Okay. And of course, it's not really true. It's true only in the very kind of shallow instrumentalist sense. Many of them would have, if you didn't exist, many of them would have found another platform yeah. to raise the buttons on because they're, you know, highly competent entrepreneurs and founders and good deals or whatever the case might be. So it's hard to think about the counterfactual. Um, in, at Start Some Good, our impact is very much about building the capacity, inspiring more people to take action and to step into social entrepreneurship and then building their capacity to do so. And part of that's providing them with tools. Um, but our, we, we think of our most important impact as the number of people who gain that experience, who 
gain the training, who go out. Again, we don't try and aggregate up all the impact of all the projects. Um, but we think very much about the experience of the fundraisers. And the name suggests that start some good. We're trying to talk to the person to start the project, start a project, bring it to start some good. We want to help. Lend for good, of course, is talking, is kind of, is kind of speaking in the other direction. Now, of course, uh -huh. there'll be, in some ways, we're very confident that by the time we get to this missing middle kind of zone, there's heaps of great enterprises, actually. Red Hat Impact themselves have, have proven that. They've been working for the last three years to kind of develop more of this lending into this space um, in a kind of non- Non non tech enabled way, um, and they're our key partner now, delivering this platform. They they really get the lending side, we get the platform side, um, and we think of our social changes opening up the impact investment market and changing the shape of impact investment itself by making it easier for anyone to become an impact investor. Um, and so we are very focused on yeah that experience of how can you come and you know access these great deals and you know for an amount of money that you feel comfortable with um put into these funds and you know in some ways that's the simple thing that crowdfunding does either style of crowdfunding is it does mm. what in the financial industry they call fractionalizes the risk yeah you know it, it, it stops it being an all or nothing decision that so much impact yep. investment is at the moment you go to a CIFA, you go to an impact investment group whatever and they make often a relatively binary decision of do we want all the deal or none of it yeah um and instead you know each of us can go i you know I want 0.1%. That's what I can afford, but that's still an important piece. I want 1%. I want 10%. Yeah. Um, and together we can hopefully, you know, provide that, that right capital at that right time that enterprises need to, to grow their business and thus grow their impact. I love it. And this is all part of your bigger mission, isn't it? Have you, I don't think you've shared that with us. Have you? Um, not sure. Probably not in so many words. I mean, to start some goods, big mission is to increase the pace of innovation for change. Yeah. Um, and again, that's informed a lot of the decisions and why we're different from, for instance, you know, when we launched Starts and Good, we were the first impact specific crowdfunding platform, you know, kind of, I was actually living in the US, but let's, let's say focused in Australia and one yeah. of the first in the US as well, not the very first. Um, of course, there's a lot that have emerged since then and during then. And I've been on lots of panels with lots of other founders and so on. And pretty much everyone else who founded a, a social good oriented fundraising platform they'll describe their mission as some version of we want to make it easier to get money to good things to mm. good causes there's great organizations out there they're too hard to find it's too overwhelming um you know chuffed always talk about they want to replace the on-street fundraising with online fundraising you know so we just want to you know make it a kind of cooler more modern form of fundraising to encourage more donors all of which is important work we want to get more money to good things as well but we actually want to get more money to a very specific type of good thing which is that new and emerging model. And that's where we think the real gap is. And it's why pretty much every other crowdfunding platform that focuses on social good has used the Indiegogo style, keep what you raise model. Yep. It's a very charity oriented model. We have a fundraising goal. We're not committed to it. We probably won't reach it. There's a lot of confusion and uncertainty around if we don't reach the goal, what exactly is going to happen? If we exceed the goal, what does the extra money make possible? Um, whereas we've used that Kickstarter style commitment model that I'm only going to take your money if I've got enough money to actually go forward, to do the thing you're trying to support. Yeah. And that model is crucial to getting people to support new things. Yeah. Because it reduces, it's, it's otherwise it's just kind it's of- It's keeping your eye on the bigger picture, yeah, isn't it? It's intuitively risky just to hand money to someone you don't already know who's not committing yeah. to even having, I mean, if you think about it on a promises level, it makes it really clear. People don't think about it like this though. So many people approach this choice of crowdfunding model just from their own perspective. 
would I rather keep what I raise or not keep what I raise? Which, of course, if you pose the question like that, of course you'd rather keep what you raise. Yeah, of course. But it's a complete distraction of the question. The right question is what's going to make it easier or harder for me to raise? Yeah. And the key thing to think about then is how much credibility do I have and with whom? And the fact of the matter is most of the people starting out don't have much credibility with very many people. Neither did I when I started. You know, you haven't yeah. done it before. You, you don't you, you don't have this amazing impact model you don't have all this metrics you don't have big you don't have lots of runs on the board to point to and so it's really on you to try and take you know to reduce the risks and increase your credibility as much as possible if you expect anyone to fund you and it's just it's a sadness to me because people aren't thinking about it right but you see so many social enterprises social like keep what you raise is fine for charity you can normally do more good or less good depending on how much money you've got yeah an enterprise requires almost always some minimum amount to make the thing happen if you're launching a social enterprise food truck you need enough money to buy a truck or rent yeah. a truck if you're you know i had an interview earlier with a woman who a founder of a reusable coffee cup company she needed to, to pre-sell a shipping container's worth mm. it couldn't launch with 10 sales or 100 she needed eight thousand yeah. to be exact she needed eight thousand to be pre-committed before she could kind of kick the whole operation into gear and that's how entrepreneurship almost always works there's some sort of threshold amount and so we you know we've reflected that in our crowdfunding model with our tipping point and it's because our mission is it's such a long-winded answer to your simple question our but mission is no, not it's, just I, more I, good I, things, it's more innovation for good things say that again it's not just more money for good things it's actually more innovation for good like to increase the pace of innovation for good and, and I it's, guess it's about setting how yeah is that you get more people involved Mm. is that you increase the pace of innovation by getting more people involved as change makers, reducing some of those barriers for people with less runs on the board, with people with, you know, unproven ideas that yeah. we need everyone. We need to try all the ideas uh, and and to see what works because the future is unpredictable and, and change happens rapidly as we've seen the last yeah. couple of years. None of us are smart enough. None of us have a crystal ball to just know what innovation is going to work and what it needs. What we needed to try more stuff. And I think, yeah, key to that is get more people involved in general in the ecosystem and that's the core mission of yeah Startup. brilliant brilliant i love yeah. it and and to me it's like uh, it wasn't long-winded it gave me the clarity that i was seeking and understanding mm. the difference and and that is you're helping to set them up in success that's the difference yeah that's right and that's you know even you know we do as a service we do a lot more than crowdfunding and start some good now but that is our almost most important metric to start some good is our success rate because most crowdfunding platforms have abysmally low success rates. Mm. Um, and again, that's totally fine. You know, if you have 10,000 simultaneous campaigns, it doesn't matter that 90% of them might be failing. That's still a thousand successful campaigns at any point in time. And if you just operationalize, you know, the key to that though, and actually this is where my own naivety came in, I'll have to admit, Carolyn, my complete lack of business savvy at first, if not still, um, was there's just a way platforms have to work as business models. And the way a platform works as a business model is high volume, low touch. That so your goal is to get to some point where the incremental cost of an extra whatever on the platform is essentially zero. Yeah. As so you look at, it doesn't cost Airbnb anything for a new house to pop up. You know, yeah. inventory is just increasing at no cost. And so, yeah. of course, it, when inventory is increasing at no cost, success rate doesn't matter. Any success mm. is going to be profitable past a certain point because the cost of that inventory is zero. So, you know, if only 1% of it sells at some scale, that could still be a sustainable, you know, business model. And you see that with a lot of platforms, you know, like an Indiegogo and so on. Um, 
where you know you can set up a campaign and just launch it and it will probably be, t- be terrible you probably don't know what you're doing to be honest no offense you, you know many of your listeners probably do actually but many people don't it's not necessarily intuitive what it takes to introduce a new idea and to identify the right target market and to map the ways to reach that target market and to do the work that's involved in any sort of a launch or sales or, or, or community building or fundraising um and so yeah right from the start we you know my background obviously you know been more community development for, for young people I yeah. know that you don't empower people by just handing them a tool yeah we did, you know we did work at Vibewire with you know kind of disadvantaged young people and you didn't just kind of go and say here's a camera make films you teach them how to make films and then hopefully leave them with the equipment nothing worse than like teaching them and then taking you have to kind of give the competence and the access to the tools yeah um, and so starts from good had the same approach like here's the technical tools but it's equally maybe more important to us that we teach people how to use them effectively and that just completely broke the platform business model like right from the start like we were just we were we were like low volume particularly right at the start and high touch yeah um, and insistently high touch more high touch than some people want you know some people just like stop stop telling me how to make it better I just want to launch it I'm like, no no it could it could be better make it better yeah. um and so learning how to you know strike the right balance as well respecting that some people don't want to make it better in the way we think it should be better and so on but so we have a, you know, we have a very human process. Everyone who starts a draft on our site gets paired with a crowdfunding coach on our team who reaches out and provides feedback and tries to make it better. We feel like we should be able to make every crowdfunding campaign at least a bit better. No matter how experienced you are, we're probably more experienced when it comes to crowdfunding. I'm sure we'd have at least one useful tip that you might not have thought of. Um, and so in some ways we reached a kind of inflection point, raised some, you know, kind of got off to a reasonable start, raised some invest, you know, had a family and friends round, got a little bit of philanthropy, got a bit of impact investment, but kind of reached a point where we couldn't make that model work and we had to go in one direction or another. We either had to mm. become more like other crowdfunding platforms, stop providing so much advice, a less human process, more automated, um, and probably see the success rate drop and a lot more kind of wasted human potential. I see that. A lot of great yeah. ideas who don't know how to, like there's a lot of, you know, obviously crowdfunding has lots of ideas that, you know, I mean, I always say, you know, it's not about you and me necessarily. We might not be the target market. Maybe that is an awesome idea and we're just not seeing it. But there's a lot of stuff out there that I don't think that's exciting or awesome either. But there are some genuinely great ideas that just people don't know how to tell the, the story, mm. don't know how to frame the idea. And often, more importantly, don't know who to tell it to. Um, mm. Just through lack of experience or exposure or support around those fundamental marketing lenses. Um, and I think that's a particular danger when it comes to social good. Yeah. Because when social good we're often encouraged to think in universal terms I mean, yeah. i've got the sustainable development goals on the wall behind me they're all universal goals but of course that's a real trap for change makers if you're like what's the goal of your company zero hunger i mean that might be a really cool you know big hairy audacious goal but who who are we starting with you know on, yeah. the, on the journey to zero hunger which which group of hungry people are we going to address first um and it's it's going to have to be some subset of everyone and you need to find that really well and you know, who are your funders? Everyone. Well, no, again, that's probably not going to mm. happen. That's not going to happen. What subset of everyone um, are we going to try and turn into your funders? Um, so, yeah, that was just, you know, I think we just felt when we faced that inflection point that we just we just didn't want to be that kind of company, actually. Despite having founded a platform, we didn't want to be a platform in that sense. We, did, we, yeah. just out to, we wanted to be capacity builders. We wanted to be service providers, I guess. You know, we, were, we, we realized we were... A, a services company pretending masquerading as a platform company um, and that's what really led us down the track of doing so many more programs and accelerators and launching our own you built a whole ecosystem haven't you around that 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 supporting the success rates 
of these yeah. organizations. Well, that's right. Yeah. Because I guess part of the real inspiration for Good Hustle even was despite our best, in, you know, there's only so much you can do when essentially people only come to the crowdfunding platform when they already think they're launch ready. Yeah, right. And often they're not launch ready, but it's a bit of a awkward conversation at that point if someone's all fired up and thinks they're launch ready and you know it's a little bit beyond scope from the kinds of feedback that people are looking for from their crowdfunding platforms yeah or, you know and so you know we at that point you know we, we don't question people's business model or impact model you know we try and help them tighten up their pitch and their story and, and get clear on their, their target market and so on but often we would like to talk about their impact model their business model but it's not our place in the crowdfunding context and so good hustle was kind of taking everything we'd learned from 10 years of helping people launch things yeah, and just being at that at that crucial moment where you're introducing a new idea to some group of people, and you really want them to take a specific action. That could be to buy the thing. It could be to chip in and donate. It could be to volunteer. It could be to become your co-founder. But you know, you're you're trying to tell a story and and elicit the 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 action and reaction you need at that time. And I guess we just feel like we've we've got you know to our point to our right at the very beginning. Actually, a much bigger sample set. Not a lot of people have their own experiences with that, and you can learn a lot from that, obviously. But we have both our own experiences, almost all everyone on the Start Some Good team is themselves a founder of some organization. Um, but also we've been with people, you know, thousands of times as thousands of people have tried and succeeded and failed. You know, we have the yeah. highest success rate in cause crowdfunding, but you also learn a lot from the failures and it's kind mm. of, it's the sample set of both. And so Good Hustle was kind of us trying to reverse engineer that. What are the core principles that obviously set people up to succeed at that moment and, and often mm. just, you know getting really clear on a few really key things and then learning how to say those things in a really succinct way to the right people but the time to be putting those fundamental building blocks in place is not two weeks before your crowdfunding campaign yeah i love how your mission has just inspired um you to innovate yourself so from a crowd crowdfunding platform asking yourself the hard questions about what you want to be, who you want to serve, how you want to serve it. And then, you know, from Lend for Good to Good Hustle, and, and I know there's even more there as well, your whole ecosystem. Um, you, you are really just burrowing in behind your mission and, um, you know, doing what you need to do to make it a reality. What I'd love to know is, you know, with, with your journey, 11 years, the last 11 years with Start Some Good, um, and everything that's come from it. What are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? That's a great question. When I should be more ready for it, I do get asked it a bit. I mean, partly what, I, what I'm most proud of is that we're still here, to be honest, 11 years in, just to, to be self-serving for a moment. I'll then obviously mention I'm very proud of some of the people we get to work with, but particularly the last couple of years, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm shocked we're still here. You know, it was really hard for us because we'd evolved so much to running programs. A lot of people thought COVID would be good for us because everyone's online now, all online fundraising. But again, what happened was established organizations did refocus on online fundraising, but our market had never been established organizations. Yeah, Our market is helping people launch things. And yeah. understandably, a lot of people didn't feel like the last couple of years were really opportune times to launch new things mm. in most cases. Absolutely. Um, and corporates pulled back from sponsoring yeah. launch-oriented programs or capacity programs and Anyway, so we've we've just been through a genuinely I can't get into the I won't get into the details here, but like a proper death defying experience a couple of times over the last yeah. couple and have come out into a really amazing place this year. And like I said, we're we're having the best year of our eleven year history. This year is suddenly a whole lot of stuff that's kind of unlocked and reemerged and um and then I guess obviously the thing that that we get really excited and proud about is just the people we get to work with and the ideas they're working on. It's a little bit like choosing your favorite child. There's so many of them over the years, but um 
Have you got some favourites? It's not, hard. I'm not call it favourites, but I'm happy to share a couple of stories. Yeah, um, that would be great. In my mind. I mean, I think there's a couple of flavours. One is, you know, on the social enterprise side, definitely loving to see people who are using that opportunity to kind of take the next step, the next step, the next step as as they scale. I think often where people can get a bit stymied is they, you know, they want a massive impact investment deal on day one um, and think they've got a model that justifies it, but they haven't got the evidence yet. And, you know, chunking it out and figuring out where to go next and how to get to your mission, um, I think is always really inspiring. And a great example of that is a, a social enterprise called Ability Made. Um, and they've really revolutionized on um, making child orthotics for young people with a, a disability who need walking aids and they particularly specialize in ankles and shins um and so that's a hard business to build you know it's a medical device you need all sorts of approvals it's technology um it costs a lot of money to get to market and so they could have been stuck you know it cost millions of dollars before they're fully in market and a lot of people face something like that and i think get really stymied by that i need millions of dollars what do i do um and they did it, it cost about two million dollars but the first forty thousand dollars came from a crowdfunding campaign yeah. Um, on our platform and that then a little while later allowed them to run the first kind of you know um, tests and, and demos and then they were able to get I think they partnered with a charity who was able to raise some philanthropic capital to support the ongoing testing experiments then they got some government research funding I think um, to support you know medical innovation yeah uh, then, they, then they got a major impact investment round yeah. Um, still pre-real revenue, but with lots of progress and understanding the nature of that market, um, you know, had had now reached the point where they did have enough runs on the board and through medical trials and traction, and now they're fully in market and doing really well. Fantastic. Um, I love that story. Um, another one I love, though, is just is, is called the Girl Academy, and it's a more community-oriented one, and it's a, it's a small school in the Cape York um, area founded by the Cape York Indigenous community specifically to support the um, unique needs of Indigenous teenage mothers mm -hmm. to help them finish their schooling. And they've been trying to raise funds for that for quite some time from the powers to be and having real trouble doing so. And ultimately, we're able to realise that they you know, were able to build their own community of supporters to do what they needed to do. And that really resonated. You know, I, I talked about Start Some Good's ultimate mission before. Mine is adjacent and similar, but slightly different. I'm really, my personal mission is all about how building a better democracy. And how, and to me, that's so much more than voting. That's all about how we create change together. So, you know, so my drive has always been, how do we help more people become change makers? You know, the young people with Vibewire and now we start some good and so on. And so I really think about crowdfunding as a democratizing tool because it allows mm. communities to share their resources and create the futures that they need for themselves without waiting for that external funder or that external permission necessarily. And that to me is what democracy should look like as well, not just how we lobby those guys over there mostly guys, increasingly less so, which is nice. But, you know, there's people over there to do the right thing. But how do we, you know, what can we do ourselves? Um, and so I think of crowdfunding as, as key kind of demo democratic infrastructure. Yeah, brilliant. Um, that's a great example of, of that kind of... That's a that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, there's, you know, lot, lots more, lots of, lots of great social enterprises. I mean, I'll give one other story, actually, which is a great enterprise in Western Sydney called Taste Tours. Yeah. Um, which I really love. And they were um, originally part of a big charity that kind of ran it as a little social enterprise sideline and the charity decided to discontinue it. They got the, apparently the, the charity got some consultants in to assess some of their stuff and who knows how much they spent to get this advice, but the advice was it can't be done. Right. It, it'll never be, it's not sustainable. Um, you should shut it down. And the people who were running that refused and so took it with them and we're right at that moment where they just essentially be told they've kind of been kicked out of the big charity that had supported them and invested in them at that point. 
they'd been told by these apparently, you know, supposedly super smart consultant, big four consultant types that it couldn't be done and wasn't viable. And at that moment, they were picked up by the Dream Starter program that we ran with ING yep. to support them to, you know, pitch their idea and raise some initial funds with backing from ING and capacity building and crowdfunding technology and infrastructure from us. Um, and they succeeded beautifully at that. They invented a new tour to offer as a reward that continues to be their number one selling tour now, seven years What do later. they do? Taste what, what they do? They? they take people around on, on culinary tours of Western Sydney. Oh, fantastic. You know, a really rich cultural and tourist experience while also kind of supporting, you know, diverse restaurants and restaurateurs in the region uh, and with an employment model as well. Um, and so I just think that's a great example of the kind of program, you know, the kind of opportunity we want to offer, the kind of the kind of program we're proud to be part of, you know, with helping design and deliver programs like Dreamstarter with IMG yep. that really created that that kind of first backer, that first follower, um, which I think is so... I love, I love um, it. And those yeah, those examples, yeah. Taste Tours, The Girl Academy and Ability Made, just, um, yeah, wonderful stories and, and more, more importantly, wonderful projects um, that, yeah, you must be incredibly proud of them. But like you say, it's like having a favourite child. You can't choose. There must be so many and it's just, I, I think what you're doing is amazing, Tom. Um, so in much. terms of, you know, not just the mission of Start Some Good, but but your own personal mission around building a better democracy, um, you are you are clearly acting on it in big and powerful and, and small ways. And I know it's not always easy, but thank goodness for people like you and organisations like Start Some Good. Um, I just, we're going to have to wrap up. So I just yes. want to... They're in danger with, of talking for two and a half hours again. I know, I know. Um, but I want to hit you up with the final question. And I know, you know, the global goals, I can see I can see them behind you um, on your screen. 2030, we're not far out, you know, less than eight years. Crazy mm -hmm. to think about it. We all know, and increasingly business leaders know, thankfully, that they have to become an active part of the solution to what's happening on our planet and in society. Um, but there are many business leaders who are still unsure, you know, even though they know, yeah, we got social purpose, impact, we've got to do something, they don't know how far to lean in. You know, mm. is it something they do on the side? Is it another tick box exercise or do they go wholly in? And there's a lot of fear around it. Um, so I want to ask you if you could share just one thing to convince a leader um, of how vital social purpose is to organisations today, what would it be? Look, I mean, I think I would, as we teach our crowdfunders, you know, try to learn a little bit about where they're coming from so I could match the, the pitch, obviously, to their, their interests. But if, assuming that we're talking to someone who's a little bit of a laggard in this area, obviously the ones who, are, who already get it or, you know, uh, already get it. That um, yep. I would probably try and lead through a business frame, that it really just is the most important business opportunity in the world today. Um, and you only have to look at the sustainable development goals. Those are those are not just social or environmental goals. They're almost every single one of them is a massive business opportunity. You know, when we talk about quality jobs for everyone, they're not going to be working for nonprofits and the government. Many do, but you know, we're talking. You know, businesses are going to create most of the jobs. When we talk about clean energy for everyone. Businesses will be creating most of that clean energy. When we talk about food for everyone, businesses will be making that food. Um, and so these are just massive, you know, kind of uh, massive objectives as a society and, and, and huge business opportunities and big fortunes will be made alongside that. Um, 
So I think that's the first thing, but but perhaps to get more, maybe that's still a little bit too high level, a bit future focused. Maybe what I would point to is the real impact I think it has in the new communications infrastructure. And I think we've really seen a big shift in the way that we communicate. And I think this goes hand in hand with some of the shifts we're seeing in kind of what we communicate around, about particularly a greater focus on values and ethics. And, you know, it's funny, it's the things, I mean, I'm old enough still that I feel like I was still raised just at the very tail end of the era where the things that you don't talk about in polite company was, what was it, politics and religion and stuff like that. And now that's all we talk about, of course, you know, the stuff mm. that matters. And see, but I actually think it's much healthier as a society that we talk about the things that matter most to us. I agree. Um, and I think we've shifted kind of big picture, just communications for everyone from a world where um, the best marketing was essentially interruption based, figure out where, what your audience was doing and then pay to interrupt them. You know, they're trying to watch football, pay to insert a message. They're trying to, hoping to get a personal letter one day and you pay to put junk mail in there and you hope that that interruption will capture them sufficiently. Um, but what we know today across every category is the best marketing is not the marketing you pay for directly, but the marketing you inspire your community to do for you sharing in other words and obviously it's not you know you can you can you can engineer sharing in a variety of ways but the most simple powerful way to inspire more sharing and to inspire your community and your staff and your partners to do your marketing for you is to stand for something more than just business success is to have that be meaning and i think one of the things i think you can really see this is with the most boring products and so the example i always give is toilet paper though maybe this is not as good an example post-covid for because for a while they're toilet paper really was this very mainstream thing that we talked about and shared but if you can think back a few years before we were all photographing our toilet paper and photographing shell empty shelves of toilet paper um I would say you know who you know who would go to the supermarket buy toilet paper get home and think to themselves man I've got to share a photo of this toilet paper with my with my friends they're going to love this no one does that except of course people who buy who gives a crap toilet paper those people love sharing photos of their toilet paper. Now, obviously, partly that's design. Who gives a crap of, you know, created a design aesthetic that's very shareable, very social media friendly. But it's also that it, there's literally more content in the photo, more meaning. You know, if I if I just share a photo of mainstream toilet paper brand, what's the story I'm sharing? I'm a toilet paper user. I mean, good story, Tom. That's really interesting. <laughs> As opposed to when you share a photo of who gives a crap, you're saying, I'm a conscious consumer. I'm someone who cares about others. You know, I'm on, you know, I, I'm, a, I, I'm anti-poverty. You're literally saying more in what is otherwise the same image. And that's the unique competitive advantage that purpose-driven enterprises have today, just in practical day-to-day -day right now terms, before we even get into things like recruitment, which you know all about. And I know you've spoken to many other guests on your show about, I think that's the other place where you see really profound, tangible business impacts right here and now, let alone the vast opportunities the near future brings before we even touch on the importance that as a, like maybe we can try and survive as a planetary civilization would like everyone be up for that. I reckon business will work better on a planet with a more stable climate. That's one of my personal beliefs. And so I think on some just very. I reckon that's a level, fact, surely. Fact, surely. I mean, there may be certain types of businesses, private security firms that maybe in a, in a world mm. of climate chaos will in theory thrive, but that to me does not seem like a very conducive business environment for almost any type of business. So just on so many levels, I think it's it's you know amazing to me that there are still business leaders who, who who aren't getting this, who see this as kind of like a nice to have or just personal preference. You know, you care about this stuff or you don't, and yeah, but I think that's irresponsible. That's like saying you care about technology or you don't. Like we're way past the time when technology was just a pet interest of certain business executives to be a like CEO and be like, you know what, I'm just not very interested in technology. How could you be a CEO today? How could yeah. you lead anything? Yeah. And I think it's the same with purpose. Yeah, yeah.
Thank you. Um, I think you've you've articulated that brilliantly, and um, yeah, just um, really appreciate the insights you've brought to this this um, conversation. And um, and I imagine it will have opened up a whole lot of minds, and hopefully inspired some people to start some good. Hey, I hope so. We'd love to help. And we will um, we'll include links to start some good and good hustle and lend for good in the show notes. Um, anything else you'd like to um, say? No, I mean, I just think there's, you know, no better time than now. I know it's a cliche, but there are just so many opportunities and it really is going to take all of us. I think we do have, you mentioned eight years away. There's some really big challenges ahead of us and some, some things are not trending in the right direction. And I do think it's going to take all of us in whatever form that means to you. That doesn't mean everyone founding a social enterprise. We can't have a world of all one person social enterprises. It means, you know, preferencing trying to work for one next time you're looking for a job look there first you know you still need to find a job I'm not going to blame you if you end up in a more corporate environment but you know check what's available in the social enterprise sector if you if you know when you buy products check what's available that social Absolutely. enterprises could do for you if you're in a position that you're in charge of procurement please see if there's a social enterprise that could supply that I just think all of us just more and more in more and more contexts just trying to use that lens as much as we can is what it's going to take to get us where we need to go Love it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tom, um, for coming on the on the show. Um, and yeah, look forward to seeing where Start Some Good goes from here. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of the For Love and Money podcast. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the purpose movement, visit us at thecauseeffect.com.au. And remember, doing good is good for business. So if you're not doing good, then what are you doing?